0: please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Those of us, those of you who are here on a regular basis know we're studying the gospel of Mark and we arrive at chapter 9 and the first eight verses and I'm going to begin by reading that text. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, where he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Friends, this passage describes this wondrous event known as the transfiguration. And as we come to this portion of scripture, I can agree with one commentator, A.B. Bruce, who said this. He said, the transfiguration is one of those passages in the Savior's earthly history which an expositor, a preacher, would rather pass over in reverent silence. He also says that we can relate to Peter who, upon beholding this phenomenon, said, it says of him, he he didn't know what to answer. Even the talkative Peter had his mouth stopped on this occasion. And that commentator goes on to say, who does know what to say any more than he? Who is fully to speak of that wondrous night scene among the mountains during which heaven was for a, a few brief moments let down to earth? And the mortal body of Jesus being transfigured shone with celestial brightness. And the spirits of just men made perfect appeared and held converse with him, respecting his approaching passion. And a voice came forth from the excellent glory, pronouncing him to be God's well-beloved son. It is too high for us, this august spectacle. We cannot attain unto it. Its grandeur oppresses and stupefies Its mystery surpasses our comprehension. Its glory is ineffable. This is indeed a high and holy passage. And yet, I have to make some poor attempt to unpack it to you. And I'm going to do that. But before we actually get into the event of the transfiguration, I I want to explain verse 1 of chapter 9. I could have rolled it into the message last week. And I'll show you why. Jesus was saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What did he mean? Well, remember from the previous passage, which we studied last week, Jesus has set forth the terms of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then he ends by saying, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, Jesus, will will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Why the next statement here? It seems that perhaps it's, it's spoken by Jesus to confirm, and I will come in my glory someday. And to prove that I will one day come in glory, I'm going to give you a foretaste of that glory so that some of you will still be alive when the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, the big question is, when is he, what event is he talking about here? And commentators differ. Some think he's talking about the transfiguration that follows. Some think he's talking about the resurrection when the kingdom of God comes with power or his ascension back into heaven or maybe when he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I personally find most convincing that what Jesus is talking about here as a foretaste of his final glory, when the Son of Man comes with power, I think he's referring to 70 AD, when Titus and the Roman legions come in and they destroy the temple and they destroy Jerusalem, that surely is a manifestation of the power of Jesus' kingdom. Because what he's saying, in effect, is no longer are animal sacrifices needed. There's only one sacrifice that is necessary. And the Son of Man, the Son of God, has made that sacrifice. And so the temple is destroyed. I believe that is the foretaste of the final kingdom glory that Jesus is speaking of. But it may also be a reference to that foretaste of glory that we see here in the transfiguration. But as to the transfiguration, I want us to see three things, the persons involved, the event described, and then the significance explained. So let's begin with the persons involved. In this little story, this scenario, there are four players, four persons, the disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, and the voice from heaven, which is clearly the voice of God, the Father. Let's consider each of these personages. First, there are the disciples. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. He didn't take all the 12. He just took three. And we ask why? And, And we're not told. But this was not the only occasion that he took that little inner circle to be with him. Do you remember earlier in the gospel when he raised from the dead the daughter of Jairus, he took with him Peter, James, and John alone to witness that miracle. In the garden of Gethsemane, To draw near to him in the intensity of his agony in the garden, he took Peter, James, and John. Why? Well, we're not told. I think we can safely speculate that Peter and James were leaders in the early church, and John is called the beloved disciple. So for some reason, these were privileged in in ways that the other disciples were not. Where were the disciples at this time in their experience and understanding Well, these three were part of the 12 apostles, which Mark 3.14 says Jesus spent all night praying and chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And in the two years of Jesus' ministry so far, they had seen an awful lot. They had seen his power to heal blind people and deaf people and deaf and dumb people and crippled people, seen his power to heal disease and and to do works over nature and to create bread to feed thousands of people from a few loaves and, and his power to cast out demons. They had listened to his astounding teaching. And to what effect had they experienced all of that? Well, six days earlier, Peter had made the confession, you are the Christ. But remember, we saw how defective was their understanding of the Christ and his mission. Because shortly after that, as Jesus begins to explain that this, the Christ, the Messiah, has to suffer many things and be killed, Peter recoils in disbelief and he, he actually rebukes Jesus. They, could, they, they had a wrong idea about the Messiah's kingdom They couldn't reconcile Jesus' suffering with the notion they had of a conquering king, Messiah. So they had seen a lot. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't understand what kind of a Messiah he had come to be. So we have the disciples in this scenario. Then we have Jesus. For more than two years, if we include the early Judean ministry, which Mark does not talk about, and the great Galilean ministry, which Mark does talk about— For two years, Jesus had gone about doing good. Multitudes have experienced his healing touch. Like I said, lepers and blind people and deaf people and and the diseased. The demonized had been set free by his words. Thousands had heard his authoritative but kind voice teaching them in stark contrast to the dull dronings of the tradition-bound scribes of that day. But what fruit had Jesus' ministry borne Thus far? Well, the entire religious establishment was against him. The the Pharisees and Sadducees were stalking him, trying to trap him in his words, plotting his death. The politically bent Herodians teamed up with them, although they wouldn't have been friends otherwise. They were united in their opposition to Jesus. His hometown of Nazareth was so offended they tried to throw him off a cliff. One city where he had healed the demoniac, the garrisons, they said, get out of town. Leave our shores. We don't want you here. And as far as the vast multitudes of people, oh, they thronged to, to, to hear him teach. And they were the glad beneficiaries of his healing touch. But the crowds were very fickle, right? Their commitment to Jesus was rather superficial. And then we have the 12 disciples they were surely devoted to Jesus, but how dull they were in their understanding. Remember the storm that Jesus stills at sea? And he says to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? When he comes to them walking on the sea, they are terrified. And he has to say these words to them in Mark six fifty-one. He said, They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When he spoke to them about the leaven, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. All they could think about, oh, we forgot to take bread. They were so carnal in their thinking. They were so ignorant of his messianic mission. And then recently, as he begins to explain that the Messiah is going to have to suffer and die, Peter has the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him. This can't happen to you, Jesus. The point is this. As Jesus is facing the cross, he has precious few earthly comforts to strengthen him in the way. Even his closest friends couldn't sympathize. They didn't understand what he was about to face on the cross. And he has few earthly comforts. And there's reason to believe, as I'll explain in a few minutes, that as this transfiguration takes place, Jesus has his sufferings in in his mind. Luke tells us he had come up to that mountain to pray. And Luke also tells us that his discussion with Moses and Elijah was about his exodus. That's the Greek word, literally his departure, his death. So as Jesus is on this mountain, he has his upcoming suffering and death on the cross in his mind. And so we have Jesus. And then we have these heavenly... Visitors, these heavenly participants, there is Moses. Why is Moses there? Moses is the representative of the law given on Mount Sinai. Moses represents the old covenant, which is preparatory to the new covenant. What is the purpose of the law? Galatians 3 tells us the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave us the law to show us we can't keep the law and to send us to a Savior. And so Moses represents the law, and he, as such, he points to Jesus as the one who kept the law on behalf of his people. Moses also represents the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, all the animal sacrifices. Well, the Bible tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So Moses appears as a representative of the sacrificial system, pointing to Jesus, as it were, as the one sacrifice that really does pay for sins. And so Moses shows up as representative of the law of God. Elijah appears. Elijah, of course, is representative of what? The prophets, the prophetic ministry. Um, the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament was raised up by God. Prophets were raised up as God's mouthpiece to call his wayward people back to the law of God. And so much of their teaching is reproof and warning. But also the prophets prophesied about what was to come. There's a lot in the prophets about, about what's happening in the future. Elijah was very much a prophet like Jesus in that they were both lonely voices boldly speaking God's word to an apostate generation. In the case of Elijah, the nation had largely turned to Baal worship. And of course, when Jesus comes on the scene, the nation is, is led by Pharisees who are choked with traditions and their heart is far from God. And so the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Jesus are very much the same. As the representative of the prophetic ministry, Elijah points to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies made about him in the Old Testament. As representative of the prophetic ministry, Elijah also points to Jesus as the final, consummate prophet. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, "God's that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among the people, and you will listen to him." And Jesus, of course, is the capstone prophet. He is the final prophet. He is the consummate prophet even as it says in hebrews 1:1 1, 1, in many and various ways god spoke to our fathers through the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son and so we have these two heavenly visitors moses representing the law elijah representing the prophets and finally in this setting there is a voice out of the cloud clearly the voice of god the father it's God the Father who planned salvation in eternity past. He is the great planner of salvation. The work of salvation is, is the work of the Trinity. The Father planned it. Jesus came and procured it. And the Holy Spirit comes and presents it to us. The Father is the great designer of the plan of salvation. And Jesus, over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John, it is recorded, he came to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father was to carry out this plan of salvation. So we have the persons involved in this stupendous event. Now let's look at the event described. Let's just take several aspects of this event and understand what's going on. First of all, the setting of the event. Verse 2 says, six days later, Jesus took him with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain. Let's just pause there. The setting. It was a high mountain. Perhaps you know, but mountains are significant in the Bible. Mountains are places where God manifests his glory. God gave the law on Mount Sinai. And he displayed his glory in such a way that the people were trembling and terrified. The manifestation of God on Mount Sinai. Elijah. Elijah battled with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that great battle between the true and living God and these false gods, where Elijah called down God's fire from heaven. He had doused the altar three times, and when the fire came, it consumed not only the burnt offering, not only the wood, which are combustible, but even the stones and the dust were burned up in the fire of God, proving that God is the true God answering from heaven. That was on a mountain, Mount Carmel. And then in the next chapter after that, Mount Horeb, the Lord reveals himself to Elijah in a gentle blowing. So mountains are significant places. They're places of manifest, the manifestation of God's glory, what, what is called theophany from the word theos, God and phanerao to manifest. They're places where God manifests himself. And so here we have this mountain of the transfiguration. Then we have the transfiguration of Jesus' person. Mark 9.2 says he was transfigured before them. That word is meta, metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. It's a transformation that is outwardly visible right? We see that in the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, and it's visible. You can tell the difference, can't you, kids, between a caterpillar and a butterfly? Now it's a caterpillar. Now it's a butterfly. It's transformed, it's metamorphosized, and Jesus was metamorphosized in front of them. It says his garments were as radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What they have here is reminiscent of the Shekinah glory, When when the Lord manifested his presence in the the old covenant temple, there was the Shekinah, this brightness, this radiance, and Jesus is manifesting that Shekinah as if he himself were Jehovah, Yahweh, and he is. And then there's the conversation with Moses and Elijah. As they were beholding this radiance of Jesus, these two other forms appear. Now... We all ask the question, how did they know that they were Moses and Elijah, right? I don't know. I don't know. We're told that Elijah was a hairy man. He was known for that in the Old Testament. I don't know. Did Moses, did he have the Ten Commandments with him? I don't know how they knew, but God gave them an intuitive sense that this is Moses and this is Elijah. And if God didn't tell us, I guess we don't need to know, right? But they recognized them as Moses and Elijah, And these men appeared to the disciples, but notice they only talked to Jesus. You see that in the text, they spoke with Jesus, and that's significant. And then we have the reaction of the disciples, verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to answer, for they became terrified. It says Peter answered. Well, there was really no question, but Peter is simply responding to the situation, and his response is, let's make three tabernacles. He's probably thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Jewish people would make these leafy huts and live in them temporarily, and Peter's probably thinking, hey, let's stay here um, and and make some tabernacles, Um, because he and the others were terrified. It's the same word used in Hebrews 12 to describe Moses' terror of God at Mount Sinai. And in his terror, Peter babbled senselessly. And then finally, in explaining the event, we have the voice from heaven, the affirmation and command of the Father. Verse 7 says, a cloud formed overshadowing them. Now, some think the cloud only overshadowed Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Others think that the cloud enveloped the disciples as well. And the language is ambiguous, and perhaps we can't know for sure. But what is clear is that a cloud in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's presence. Let me read a couple of verses from Exodus, where we indicate even as a mountain is a place where God manifested his glory, clouds were places that represented the presence of God. Exodus 16 and verse 10. We read, it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And then in chapter 19 and verse 9, we read, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. So a cloud represents the presence of God. And so when this cloud enveloped them, it was saying God, Yahweh from heaven, was drawing near and was coming among them. The voice is obviously the voice of the Father. It's a voice of affirmation of Jesus. This is my beloved Son. This is my unique Son with whom I have a unique relationship And then with that affirmation, there's a sober command, listen to him. Listen to him in all that he has said, and maybe in light of the recent dialogue where Peter rebuked Jesus, and he wasn't listening to Jesus, Jesus is saying one thing, Peter's contradicting it, maybe especially with reference to that, the Father is saying, listen to him, Peter, and all of you. And so there we have the event described. Now, finally, the significance explained. Up to this point, we've only made observations. You know, a good paradigm for Bible study is observation, interpretation, application. Have you ever seen that? It's a good way to study the Bible. Observe, ask questions, interrogate it. What, when, why, how? Ask questions of your Bible. That's observation. Then interpretation what does it mean? And then application. Well, so far, all I've done is make observation. Now we need to do some interpretation and some application. So let's consider the significance. Explain what was the significance of this event of the transfiguration? Well, we want to look at it from two standpoints, the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus and the significance of this event for the disciples. First, the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus. I think to understand what this meant for Jesus, we need to understand, make some connections in the context. Notice in the text, Mark and the other synoptics follow suit in making it a point to say it was six days later. Now, when time references are given, there's usually some significance. And he's saying, this was six days later. Well, what happened six days earlier? Well, six days earlier was when Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, the son of man needs to suffer and be killed. And Peter rebuked him. So six days earlier, they had that discussion where Peter contradicted Jesus in what he was saying about his suffering. Luke also, as I mentioned, tips us off to the fact that when he spoke with Moses and Elijah, what they were speaking about was his exodus. Luke 9.31 says they were speaking of his departure, exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're talking about his death. Six days earlier, he was talking about his, his suffering and death. Now he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his death. Luke also tells us he had come up to that mountain to pray in light of the approaching shadow of the cross as he was beginning to to enter the valley of the shadow of death, his suffering, and the cross is on his mind when he comes to this mountain. I think from these considerations, we can safely conclude the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus. It seems that this event was given by God the Father to encourage Jesus on his sorrowful path to Jerusalem and to the cross. How would it have encouraged him? First of all, it gave him a foretaste of the glory that awaited him after his sufferings. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that enabled Jesus to persevere through the agony of the cross It was the joy of being restored to the glory he had with the father before. That's what comes out in his high priestly prayer before his suffering. He prays in John 17, four and five. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What enabled Jesus to press on through the valley of the shadow of death? It was on the other side. There's glory. I'm going to be exalted. I'm going to be restored to the glory I had with my father from all eternity. And that meant a lot to Jesus. And so for him, this transfiguration, this portrayal of him in his glorious nature would have been a foretaste of the glory that awaited him after his sufferings. Perhaps a pale parallel will be a woman enduring the pains of labor. Some of you, many of you have been through that, some of you many times. Some are about to experience that in the coming months, one of you for the first time. And what is it that will help you? to get through the the pain of labor, the pain which causes the husband to say, thank you, Lord, that I wasn't born a woman as I watch my wife in this agony and try to encourage her, right? But what is it that will help a woman get through it? It's because at the end, God willing, you will have a precious little baby that will be pressed to your breast. And we see the photos, don't we, of the mother with the baby on her chest, no makeup makeup. She's not looking very nice from one standpoint. She's been through a battle. But, oh, there's that look of contentment and and joy because I've labored for this precious child. Well, similarly, Jesus endured the cross because on the other end there was glory, glory of my father. And God is giving him a foretaste of that. Further, it gave him the comfort that at least those in heaven understood his sufferings. Did anybody on earth understand? No, his enemies were seeking to kill him. Everybody's against him. The crowd is approving him. Yeah, sure, because he's giving them all these benefits, but they're very fickle. And his closest, nearest, dearest friends don't have a clue as to what he is suffering. He had no sympathy from anyone on earth, even his nearest and dearest disciples. But the Father is saying... I'm going to give you some encouragement from heaven. There are those who understand. Moses understands because he looked forward to that, that great prophet. Elijah, as representative of the prophets, he pointed forward to you, the great prophet. And Abraham, it says, rejoiced to see Jesus day. And so in the face of the absence of comfort from earth, the father is saying, I'm going to give my son some comfort from those who do understand what he's about to face, Moses and Elijah. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus was encouraged that way. Remember when Jesus had endured the intense temptation in the wilderness? Then, on that occasion, um, God sent his angels to comfort him. And so here... He is giving comfort from heaven as if to say um, there's no comfort from earth. Vain is the help of mortal man, but here's some encouragement from heaven. And so the father sends to his beloved son these messengers who have encouraged him. Well, at least angels have encouraged him before now, Moses and Elijah. And a third significance for Jesus It gave him the joyful assurance of his father's approval. There are three times that the father spoke from heaven with approval or approbation of his son. Remember at his baptism, the spirit descends upon him and the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On one other occasion recorded in John 12, as Jesus is getting close to the cross, he says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And you see his internal wrestlings. No, no. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Similar to in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. No, no. Should, should I say, save me from it? No, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In other words, my son, stay on task. You, I will be glorified in your death for the redemption of sinners. And now, here, with all the discouragements of earth, the Father breaks through and he says, This is my beloved Son. I am still, I am pleased with you, Son. I am still pleased with you. You are still my beloved Son. And for Jesus coming, wanting to do the will of the Father, wanting above all else to please his Father this would have been a great encouragement because that was his goal and that was his delight to please the Father. And so what was the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus? It was intended to encourage him on his sorrowful path to Jerusalem and the cross. To have the affirmation of those messengers from heaven, Moses and Elijah, who did understand what his disciples did not. And to have the approval of his father, that you are my beloved son. And I love you for carrying out my will and being willing to go to the cross. And what should we take for ourselves from the significance of the transfiguration for Jesus? I think we can take from it a reminder that Jesus was fully human a reminder of the frail humanity of Jesus. And sometimes we lose sight of that as believers. Jesus is God. He is God. But he's also fully man. And as man, he's susceptible to the fears and to the apprehensions that we face in our frail humanity. Jesus needed comfort. He needed assurance in the garden. He said, couldn't you watch with me for even an hour? You say, well, he's God. Yeah, but he's he's God clothed in human flesh and he wanted human companionship. He wanted somebody with him to understand when he's going through this agony. And so we need to appreciate the humanity of our Lord Jesus. As Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin and understanding his sympathy we ought to do what the next verse says in hebrews 4 therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need when you are in need of comfort and consolation when you're facing fearful and apprehensive situations Don't think that Jesus is some distant, cold-hearted eastern deity with his arms folded and his eyes squinted. He went through it himself. He understands the loneliness. He understands the rejection. He understands the need for consolation and comfort, even from his friends. That should enable us to draw near to him as a sympathetic high priest. Don't dishonor Jesus by seeing him as cold and distant and aloof and unconcerned. He's a sympathetic high priest. He needed the comfort and encouragement of that event. But then finally, what is the significance of the transfiguration for the disciples? Well, first of all, it was surely a revelation of the glory of the person of Jesus. I mean, they see him, you know, with this shining brilliance reminiscent of the Shekinah glory. I mean, this is like they saw in the temple. This kind of brightness is, is divine brightness, divine glory. It's Shekinah. And then the appearance of these two Old Testament representatives, representing the law and the prophets, pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Later on, in his resurrected form, talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, he would say, recorded in Luke 24:27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And so they would have seen Moses and Elijah. Why are they here? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He's the fulfillment of the prophetic ministry. And then there's the conversation, if they overheard it, about his exodus, his departure. And they realize that, wait a minute, this is the second exodus. Moses led an exodus of people, physical deliverance from Egypt. This exodus that Jesus will conduct is a greater exodus. He will lead people not out of physical bondage, but he will lead them out of the bondage of sin into eternal life. This second exodus will be performed by this Jesus we have been following. And then there's the cloud denoting the presence of God and the voice owning Jesus as God's unique beloved son. So surely, all of these events for the disciples pointed to the glory of Jesus' person. This is confirmed in what Peter will later write in his first epistle, 2 Peter 1:16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So surely, the manifestation of the glory, the majesty of Jesus, was one of the purposes for the disciples. Secondly, it would have been a confirmation of the truth of the words of Jesus. What did the Father... And maybe everything happened in order for them to hear the words of the Father, listen to him. The shining brilliance, majesty of Jesus, the appearance of these two men, the cloud, but then... The capstone is the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Present tense, ongoing, be hearing him. And so surely it's a confirmation of the truth of Jesus' words. Hear him in all that he says to you. And then similar to this, was it not a correction or a rebuke for their failure to hear Jesus? Six days earlier, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He will suffer many things and be killed. Oh, no, Lord. And Peter rebukes him. Isn't this something of a rebuke from heaven? The father saying, no, no, Peter. You don't rebuke my son. You listen to my son. in everything he says to you, but especially... And what he's saying is coming down regarding his messianic mission. Be listening to him. It's something of a correction for them. Peter wanted to make three tabernacles. This is nice. Let's just stay here in this glorified setting here. This is sure better than facing those hateful Pharisees. Sure better than going down and facing those theft, fickle crowd. Let's just stay here. Peter had glory on his mind and Jesus is saying, no. The father's saying, this isn't the time for glory. This is a time for cross bearing. You got to get down from the mountain and you need to listen to my son and what he is going to suffer and what you are called to suffer as his disciples. And so it's a bit of a correction as well. And so as we close, what? Further significance of this event is intended for us? Well, a few things. I think this event of the Transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the glory that awaits us as God's people. The Bible tells us we're going to live not in heaven in an ethereal way, floating around. We're going to live in glorified bodies, resurrected bodies on a renovated earth forever, right? New heavens, new earth. I think this gives us a glimpse of of what we're going to enjoy for all eternity. We will have glorified bodies. Now, Moses and Elijah, were they temporarily given resurrected bodies to appear like this? Well, they, they didn't appear as spirits. They had bodies, and I suppose they would have been glorified if only temporarily. We will have glorified bodies. We will retain individual personalities, They were still Moses and still Elijah. We will have recognizable features. That's Moses. That's Elijah. They were recognizable from who they were on earth. We will be called by name. They still had the name Moses and Elijah, the same name they had on earth. Apparently we will as well. And there was a nearness and familiarity with Jesus, not as equals, but they were not dreading Jesus. And in the new earth, We will be with Jesus. We will have a familiarity with him, and we won't be on our faces in dread fear of him. We'll not relate to him as an equal, but we will relate to him with a familiarity of the bonds of love. And it's Jesus' presence that makes heaven heaven. He said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be. That's why if you're an unbeliever, you don't want to go to heaven. Because if you don't love Jesus now, if you don't treasure his presence now, heaven would be hell for you because heaven is all about where Jesus is. But for those of us who have been saved by Jesus, that's what makes heaven heaven. Not metaphorical language about streets of gold. It's going to be a beautiful environment, but it's because Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven for us. And so I say for us, this transfiguration gives us a little glimpse of the glory that awaits us as God's people. Secondly, it gives us great confidence in the apostolic testimony. Friends, do you ever wonder, really, no matter how long you've been a Christian, is this real? I mean, is Jesus really the Savior? Did he really live and die and rise again? Is he really alive? Is is this faith I am giving my life to really true? Is it? Do you ever just ask that question? Is this a pipe dream? I mean, I'm, I'm, all my eggs are in that basket. If Jesus isn't God, I've got no hope. I'm all in for Jesus and the gospel. Is this real? Is this true? I'll tell you, the testimony of Peter in Second Peter 1 is a tremendous encouragement. For we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What gave Peter the grace? to be willing to be crucified for Jesus and say you know I'm not even worthy to be crucified right side up crucify me upside down because my master was crucified right side what was made the six the, the 11 disciples willing to go to their brutal deaths as martyrs these three in particular because they were with him on the holy mountain and they saw that glory And they said, whatever I have to endure in this life, even an agonizing death, it's worth it because there's glory on the other end, because we had a foretaste of that glory on that mountain. And we know it's real, and we know it awaits us. Isn't that a tremendous boon to your faith? You're not following myths. You're not following men who simply had a a more heightened religious consciousness. We're following the apostolic witness of men who were there. They saw it with their own eyes. They're not mystics. These are, are, you know, boots on the ground fishermen, practical guys. And they were there. They were convinced Jesus is the Lord of glory. And that's our confidence as well. well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this event. Thank you for what it meant to your son as you encouraged him in the lonely path to the cross Thank you for what it was intended for the disciples, and thank you for what is intended for us. It gives us great confidence that we are following witnesses, eyewitness testimonies to your glory, Lord Jesus. And we can trust that living for you is worth it, dying for you is worth it, because on the other side is glory. And we thank you, and we pray in your name.